0: What the leadership was doing to the people, stripping them and and you know pulling the skin off. You know you can read that in chapter chapter three. There, uh, God called it wickedness. This bloodshed was wickedness, but they weren't physically doing it. They were just using the people, and the things that we're doing was leading to the death of the innocents. And it's sort of that whole idea that's going on there in Micah is sort of illustrated by the present. <laughs> Actually, some of the people that are in our government and the decisions and the, what they have done has led to crimes against children, crimes against humanity. And so God does uh, judge that. Uh, you know, they, they were not eating the people. They, they were not practicing cannibalism. It was metaphorical of what they were doing, stripping the people of what God had given to them. And so uh, context will always tell us uh, in regards to what uh, is implied with this blood guilt. Verse 5, all the sacrifices were to be, w- number one, brought to the priest, brought, t- and two, to the door of the tabernacle. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Put yourself in the camp. You've got 2 million people that's come out of the nation of Israel. They've been exposed to uh, idol, idol worship while they were in Egypt goat worship actually and the idea of bringing it to the door to the tabernacle to the priest was to bring unity within the nation you just couldn't have everybody running around hey I want to worship God and you know you know Slaughter an animal and, and then make an offering out in the middle of the camp or out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, everybody just can't do their own thing when it comes to the worship of God. So it's pretty sort of easy to understand that. And so he again he had described a way in which he must be approached, and it was through the priest through at the door there of the tabernacle, and and notice there, <coughs> excuse me, in verse uh, five to to the end. That the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices. There is an end to this. There's there's meaning, there's purpose behind what God requires. God desires to have fellowship. That's what the peace offering was all about. He wants to have an intimate, personal relationship with each one of His children. That's just that is the heart of God. And so the tabernacle, and this is uh, from Spence, a guy. A, Dr. Spence, who commented commented on this particular section, let me read what he had to say. Informative, at least to me, Uh, he put it this way. The tabernacle or the temple was a sign of unity to the Jews because it contained the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. That was a visible symbol of God's presence among his people. The hearts of the people went towards the sanctuary with adoration and love. Therefore, all the sacrificial rites had to be performed before the door of the sanctuary, not only while they lived in the wilderness, but also when they settled in Canaan. The journeys up to Jerusalem at the three great festivals intensified their love for the temple and made their sense of union and communion with one another and with God. You see, it's just not about me, it's not just about you, but it's about us before God. And this is what God was driving home by these instructions. And so, uh, again, this is, this, as we noted there, the sacrifice of a peace offering. If you remember back in uh, chapter 3, I believe it is, uh, the idea with the peace offering was that it was for fellowship. The, most of that sacrifice would be given back to the people so that they could, Is the idea of coming to Yahweh's house and eating a meal with him. As I refer to often, Jesus was often eating where? With sinners and with people. God wanted to have communion. The whole spiritual idea of when you eat the same food and I eat the same food, we're becoming one. God wanted that oneness. It's illustrated in the life and ministry of Christ, but it's illustrated here in the peace offering uh, as well. It is the idea of God wanting to have fellowship with his people. The idea here uh, to do so was to sprinkle the altar uh, uh, with the blood of that sacrifice, and the altar represents our hearts before God. Our hearts are sprinkled with the in this era uh, with the blood of Christ, and then the burn burning of the fat. The idea of giving God the best uh, we have is what's implied there. So, just very rich in. Uh, imagery there for us uh, it, it was just the proper place for this to go on to have everybody independently doing their own thing would have been chaos and it not produced uh, the effect that it needed to be for the nation now obviously part of, of this at this point in time they were reading this they had just come out of Egypt and they needed to be purged of all the pagan influences that they had learned uh, while in Egypt. And this one of them was this goat worship. And so the the lesson, the illustration should be obvious. When we come to Christ and we're converted, and we are to become disciples, not just converts. uh, We are to put away the idols, the things that were destroying our lives, and make God preeminent. Make him first. And so this is what was going on. Uh, of course, they had these counterparts in the land of Canaan, uh, the satars and all this. Uh, yeah, the whole idea behind this goat worship was fertility, as if you know the demonic realm had control over that. No, God has control over fertility. And so he's purging them of, of all those kinds of things. If you didn't uh, obey this command... The severity of it was that you would be cut off. And see, we need to understand it isn't that, you know, God is a jealous God, but He loves us so much He doesn't want us to, to live in pain and suffering. I mean, He's trying to deprive us of those things that really damage us. And it's when we begin to place more importance on the creation rather than the Creator, that just leads to trouble. It leads to pain in our lives. Let me skip down to verses 15 and 16 and finish that, and then we'll go back and finish up here with verses 10 through 14. But the point of the last two verses here, uh, the, the eating of animals that had died at either a natural death or, or um, by other means, other animals or whatever, uh, if you ate f- that food, you know, you know hey that guy's not that animal's not been dead that long let's you know there's some good meat right there let's let's throw it on the grill and go for it. you know that kind of thing. This is you know the pragmatic side of human beings right let 's not let anything go to waste right Well, the problem with that is that uh the animal had not been properly bled, and so you have some depending on how long it had been. Dead. There's some coagulation uh, of the blood in the muscles and the parts of the meats that you would eat. So you could eat that, not die. And it wasn't necessarily contaminated in that regard because it hadn't been, you know, dead long enough to fester any kind of disease. But it, it wasn't kosher, so to speak. And so uh, the way that was defiling because you're now associating what you eat, the intimacy, the spiritual ideas. You're being defiled by something that is unclean. And therefore, you need to, to go through the, the ritual of cleansing yourself, and that would be washing your body and your clothes, and then you're going to be unclean for the rest of that day. So that's kind of the idea behind uh, what was going on with that particular uh, command to them. But in this middle section, the principle of the blood and the prohibitions that were given to the nation of not eating blood. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really have any desire to eat blood, and you probably don't either, and... Um, I, I do like my steak a little pink, but I don't like it, uh, stuff on the plate, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so I really don't, I'm not tempted to that, uh, to do that. Um, but to a Jewish person, um, this, you know, very important to them not to have any of that. No Israelite and no stranger, no one was to partake of blood. Why? Because life is in the blood. Life comes from God, life returns back to God. Man has no right, he has no authority when it comes to life. All that belongs to God. To take that upon ourselves is to cross the line, is to bring forth blood guilt upon our lives. Why? God has chosen to use the life that's in the blood to provide atonement. There's no clear uh, scripture here, uh, that relates to atonement. Uh, then in verse 11 there. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. Substitutionary sacrifice. So what God is saying is instead of taking your life for the sins that you've committed and the debt that you've incurred, I'm going to allow this animal or this bird to be your substitute. And it's actually a picture of what I'm going to do through my son. I'm going to as it were become what you are so that you could become what I am. I'm going to make you righteous through what my son does. And this is again something only God can do. To act outside this prescribed Law was to bring judgment of God upon your soul. Have you thought about the power of the blood? This is this is uh, not something that's really talked a lot about in church. And Of course, there's those who criticize, you know, the Jewish nation and throughout the years, oh, the slaughterhouse religion, you know, and all those kinds of derogatory things. Only because they're ignorant. They do not understand the ways of God nor the purposes of God, and therefore they scoff at them. Jesus dying on the cross makes no sense to the heathen. I used to think, well, why? You know, I was a heathen once, and I wasn't raised in the church. And I would look, you know, I heard that Jesus died on the cross. I mean, who hasn't heard that if you've lived in the United States? Most people have heard that Jesus died on the cross. Unfortunately, many people in the world have not heard that, and they need to hear that. But it didn't make any sense. Well, why, did, why would he do that? You know, it makes no sense to the natural mind. And so, but I don't think there's any more important gift to understand. I don't think there's any more important truth to grasp in all the scriptures than, than the life is in the blood and the power of the blood. And it's not just knowing it, as we're going to see here. It isn't applying the blood that really counts, that really matters. I think we should talk about the blood. I think we should sing about the blood. What? We should never stop preaching and singing about the blood of Christ. Do you understand the significance of the blood of Christ? The Bible tells us many powerful things about the blood of Christ. And I want to take you on a tour. I know I love... I love the Bible programs and, and the helps, you know, because you immediately when I start going through this, you know, all, you start thinking about the blood of these sacrifices and, and what's taught there in verse 11. It's immediately your mind goes to Jesus, right? I mean, you just go there. But do you ever think about all the scriptures in the New Testament that talk about the blood of Christ? And so when you, you know, your Bible program, you just plug that in and all the work's done for you. Just boom, 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 boom. And you just read through that and it is so... Powerful, I want to share it with you. It's transforming. It's wonderful. It's amazing. I'm humbled by it. And this is why he shed it. When you apply the blood of Christ, it provides the forgiveness of your sins. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. God has given the blood to provide atonement. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Again, the metaphorical usage here, there's a lot going on there, but it's the idea of partaking of what God has provided that we receive. Applying the blood brings you close to God. Ephesians 2.13 But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ applied cleanses your conscience. I don't know about you, but as I'm experiencing revival in my own life, some of the the guilt that is just it's just rough sledding. Mentally and spiritually, it's just like, God, free my soul. I have still have you know thoughts from my previous life. My B.C. days, you know, before Christ. And some of those pictures and the shame and the horror, the guilt, the blood cleanses the conscience. The law could never do that, but the blood of Jesus can. And I'm thankful that he applies it to my heart and to my life. Have you allowed God to apply it to your heart? Have you asked him to apply it to your heart? To wash your conscience and to purge your, your conscience? You do well if you do. That's Hebrews 9.14. <coughs> Hebrews 10.19 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus... Having the blood applied to your life gives you boldness. You have confidence that when you pray, and you, you can come right into the very presence of God. Now, I'm not trying to be disrespectful here, but it's almost like you can run into the presence of God and run up to the throne and jump on his lap. That's the kind of confidence. You know, you fathers know what it's like to have their little people and your life come running in, Jump on your lap, oh, hurt you, you know. <laughs> but you just, you're not, you not, you don't shut them down. It's like, oh man, it's something you desire. It's to be wanted, to know that you're loved and your kids love you. And it's the same with God. We have that confidence before God. That's just wonderful. Hebrews 13 12 it tells us that the blood of Christ applied sanctifies us therefore jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate first john 1 7 tells us that it cleanses us but if you walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of jesus christ cleanses us from all sin notice he says all sin not just some sins but all sins Aren't you glad? Well, I'm going to forgive you for this one, but you really crossed the line. I'll, you went too far here, son. No. All sin. For anyone who is willing to apply it. It only works if you apply it. We must apply it. It redeems you, according to 1 Peter 1 18 and 19 knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Did you ever think about the blood of Christ applied brings healing to you? He who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed first peter 2:24 the blood of christ according to Re- revelation 12:11 says enables us to overcome the devil and his works they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony they did not love their lives even to death. Isn't that wonderful? We overcome the enemy. You know, the enemy starts hammering you. You wicked. You should know better than it. How many times do you have to do that before you learn? And God's done with you, you know, that whole condemnation. That's what the law does as well. Not only does the devil condemn us and our own conscience condemn us, but the law, it shows us our guilt and it will hammer you. Without mercy, you have broken the law and the commands of God and therefore you are under the judgment of god that's what the law does but the blood says you've been atoned for you are now reconciled to me through the precious blood of my son you know the blood is so important it was mentioned it's mentioned in the bible over 700 times david referred to it as incorruptible peter said it was precious John said, it was, as I just read, gives us the power to overcome. And as we read there in verse 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so there's this spiritual aspect. There's this physical aspect of the blood. Think about it for a moment. We, you doctors and you people that are in the medical field, you sort of know a lot of this. Uh, I like reading about it. I just haven't studied those things, but we know that your blood uh, supplies the oxygen uh, to your cells, it brings nutrients to your cells, and then it, you know, removes the toxins, and um, you know, keeps you healthy. And you know, we know that if if uh, if you cut off the blood supply, you're in big trouble. <laughs> you're going to die. And so we need to understand that from a, you know, we can sort of spiritualize that. You know, if you, if you cut off the, the blood supply of the blood of Jesus from your spiritual life, you're going to die. We are dependent upon the flow, that crimson flow that flows from the cross. You know... Thank God for the blood of Jesus because if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus we'd all be Pharisees. Isn't that true? God help us. Thank God for the blood of Jesus. You know, in the blood there's these white blood cells that fight off the sickness. Anytime you get a, you know, bacteria or some kind of virus, you know, the those little guys work overtime. Find the Intruder, you know, (laughs) kill him. (laughs) You know, that's the way God made us. And, you know, blood keeps us healthy and uh, protects us from those diseases. You know, if you're in the Word of God and you're applying the Word of God and you're applying, you know, the blood of Christ to your life, you're going to remain spiritually healthy. That's the whole idea. You think, I... Preach devotions and prayer, uh, because I'm putting you under. I'm putting you under law. <laughs> no, it's just wise. It's it's what we do because we're God's people. We want to be holy and set apart to Him, and this is the. Those are the means by which God has left us to do so. Jesus at the Last Supper in Luke twenty two twenty said, "This cup of the new covenant is in my blood." which is shed for you. And again, this whole idea of applying the blood is illustrated. You just isn't, you know, knowing about the blood. It isn't just about, for the Israelites in Exodus 12, it wasn't just about slaughtering the lamb and catching its blood. That wasn't sufficient. They had to take the hyssop and the door, the lintel and the doorpost. Your heart has to be, the blood must be applied You know, if you you were an Israelite, you could have slaughtered the lamb. You could have partaken of the meal. But if you did put that blood over the doorpost and the lintel, that death angel was coming for you. It isn't enough to know about the blood of Jesus. It's important that you apply it to your life. Without it, you'll die. You'll be cut off from God's people how important that is. Now, this chapter is amazing to me that out of all the Old Testament laws, this chapter was referred to in Acts 15 when there was a debate in the early church about what relationship should the Gentiles have to the law of Moses. Peter referred to it in that council meeting there as a yoke that neither... We or our fathers could bear, and that is that's putting it lightly. We couldn't keep the law. We're not, we don't, the the human flesh, fallen nature is just too weak. Nothing wrong with the law, it's just our inability. And so, they came up with four things in particular. I think I can remember them. One is that you don't eat things that are offered to idols, no blood. No, nothing strangled and avoid fornication. Those are the four things out of the law and some of those right here in this chapter. And so this is applicable to us today. They pulled it out in the early church and applied it to us, to the Gentile church. Well, I think it's something we should pay attention to. Be careful with how you deal with the blood. You know, that's, what, that's really what makes... Um, For the Jews, things kosher or not kosher, if the animal's not bled properly, as I alluded to earlier. You know, as we close out here, you know, it's just important that we learn the lessons that we're supposed to learn on this side of heaven. There's lots of them to learn, but one of the most important lessons for us to learn is how that we should relate to God during our days here. This is the the struggle, isn't it? Because we're all, we all sin and we all fall short. And during those times when we're vulnerable because of our flesh and our weakness and our rebellions and our attitudes and all the things that sort of creep in and mess, us, mess with us, you know, so to speak, we have to learn how to relate to God. And I want to say to you, try to avoid, and it's hard, but try to avoid relating to the Lord on the basis of performance because if you're good you know you've read your Bible you've attended church you've helped the little old lady across the street you know all the good things you're supposed to do right and you sort of pat yourself on your on your back and you know you feel pretty good about yourself and you feel like you know God sort of owes you because you've been such a good boy you know (laughs) we think God owes us something special because we're doing extra well at the time you know or then the other end of the spectrum is, you know, you've, you've really just fallen off the wagon and just really blown it. And you feel like at any moment you're going to experience wrath. You see, that's what performance relating to God on a performance basis will do for you. It's one or the other, and yet it's not pleasant. And you know what? I've got good news for you and for me. God has not chosen to relate to you or to me on the basis of my performance. Isn't that nice? He has chosen to relate to you and to me on the basis of grace through the work of Jesus Christ. God relates to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. When he looks down from heaven, he looks through the mercy seat. That mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant that's there has been covered with the blood of Jesus. And anybody who has taken the time And in sincerity, ask God to apply the blood to their lives. God is now viewing them to the the perfection and blessing that Jesus Christ brought to you and to me through shedding His blood. That's how He wants to relate to you. That's how He wants to relate to me. Think about it. Jesus Christ has secured every blessing that you and I will ever need throughout all eternity. That's huge. All because you have, in sincerity, made the effort to apply the blood to your life. Now, I want to share a few things here. one of the major things we receive that, that we really, and, and it relates to this performance issue. When we receive Christ, Romans 3, we receive the gift of righteousness. Now, don't fall into the trap thinking you can continue to do good works and improve on the righteousness that you've been given as a gift. You didn't earn it. It's a gift. Just because you believe, it's now that gift. You're righteous in God's eyes. We fall into the trap thinking how somehow we can become more righteous if we're doing something and earn God's favor. That's not relating to God. That's relating to God on a basis of performance. We don't do that anymore. We come in the name and in the righteousness of Christ, because the Bible tells us what, what we are. And this is: if you're going to experience revival, you must you must apply this to your life. Romans three ten. There is none righteous. No, not one. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. We're talking about the epitome of perfection that God requires. None of us as human beings can reach that level. So God knowing that gave us his gift of righteousness. So all you have to do, and that sounds very simple, and maybe even simplistic to some, all you have to do is ask for God's blessing. It doesn't matter if you've sinned, what you've done. You have the right, because you are in Christ, to ask God for his blessing in Jesus' name. God, give me what I don't deserve in Jesus' name. It just, it, it's counterintuitive to us. Because we're fallen. But that's the truth. So let God do all that he wants to do in your heart. This week and forevermore. By just simply asking. And just receiving what he has. I think Paul understood this quite well. Being of the priesthood. Pharisee and and understanding uh, the laws of God and Judaism. He brought this truth into the New Testament. For the New Testament church in Romans twelve one and two, the whole idea of the burnt offering, this full surrender to God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's the intelligent thing to do. In other words, that you might prove. What is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Because you're no longer being conformed to this world, but you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind, by applying the blood to your life, by applying the scripture to your life. I'm going to close with this. The blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ demonstrates, it illustrates perfectly that god is for us god is not against us i know the thoughts saith the lord i think towards you thoughts of good not of evil thoughts to bring you to an expected end god is for us so many christians walk around in condemnation thinking that god is angry with them he is not he took out his wrath upon his own son we he took our place So God can relate to you and I on the basis of grace. How do we know that God is for us? Think of these ways. And there's just a few. We've been given that gift of righteousness. That tells us that God is for us. We have eternal forgiveness. Forgiveness that lasts forever. That's God's favor. We have the blessings of God through faith. We have peace. You know, that when, that, when that guilt conscience and, and, and blood guilt and all the other things that are, that are removed from our being, that tells you God is for you. We're justified through faith. We're freed from the law. We're now given the Holy Spirit as a gift so that we can live under the law of the Spirit of life in Christ. We have the power to live and overcome The sin nature. Isn't that wonderful? That means that God is for us. We are free from the bondage of fear. Has fear got a grip on your heart? Are you afraid of what the future might hold for you? God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. Hang on to that. That's an indication that God is for you. He's on your side. Rather, you and I are on his side. We have the witness of the Holy Spirit. His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Even in the midst of suffering. Look, God loves you more than you could ever comprehend. So just get used to it. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you did in the person of Jesus Christ. It's just, it is Lord to us incomprehensible, the depth of your love and care for us. But I pray, Lord, that as we walk with you, that these truths will just continually flash upon our hearts and our spirits, that we truly might be transformed and become more and more like you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for what you did on the cross. Thank you, Father, that you were willing to give your Son and. Send your spirit to live inside us and to sanctify us and set us apart from the world. We thank you for these great and precious promises, Lord. And now we just want to surrender our lives to you and ask that you would use us to make you known and that you would cause us to know you better each and every day. Bless my brothers and sisters today and fill us with joy in believing. In Jesus' name, shall we stand?